Welcome to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm your host, Jason Powers, down in Tampa, Florida. Hope everybody's having a good week so far. Uh, we had some some interesting uh, news in the sports world. Had a couple things going on. But today, we've got a special guest. We are going to be interviewing Mr. B.B. Abbott, who is a Major League Baseball sports agent. Uh, he has his own firm called Jet Sports Management based down in Tampa, and we're going to talk to Mr. Abbott just about his career and some of his clients and some of the services he offers and all the different things that go into being a sports agent, and especially in the baseball world. So welcome to the podcast, B.B. Hey, Jason. Thank you for having me. Great. All right, B.B. So let's first personal question is B.B. Talk, talk to me about B.B. Is that a family name? Is that a nickname or short for something? It's a nickname that uh, kind of originated when I was much younger. My my dad went by the name of Vernon, B-E-R-N-O-N. That's his middle name. And so it kind of grew from there because I was uh, the second Vernon. I was yeah. named after him, Charles Vernon Abbott II. So started calling me B.B. when I was uh, about five and it kind of stuck. And I thought it was better than than Charles when I was a kid. So <laughs> nah, it's a cool name. It's a, no, it definitely gets, you know, you, you don't forget that for sure. For, so uh, that's, that's definitely in this, in the world you're in name recognition and remembering people's names. That's a, that's a big thing. I'm sure. So sure. no pe- people don't forget BB for sure. So, well, welcome to the podcast, sir. Uh, like I said, appreciate you doing this. I, uh, I kind of, kind of be, became aware of you as, as my father. Uh, my father lives in the same neighborhood as you do. And, your mom was walking around the uh, walking around the neighborhood. Probably it's probably been about a month ago during all the COVID stuff, and she stopped and started chatting with my father. And I'd happened to be there, and your name came up, and that you were an agent, and that you lived right around the corner. So I kind of thought, hey, he'd be a great guy to get on the podcast, and he's right around the corner. So uh, now, how as your how long have you been in Tampa? I've been in Tampa since 1991 in St. Pete, and then I moved into. Uh, into Tampa in, in 94. So okay. I've been uh, here since 1994. Awesome. Awesome. It's cool that your mom's right around the corner and able to, you know, able to see her and everything, everything, everything good through the, through the, uh, this whole, the pandemic and everything. Yeah, it's hard, obviously, you know, I mean, she, we moved her into the neighborhood. My sister lives over on Davis Island and then I moved her closer, uh, to me. And so I'm able to see her, uh, you know, we see her, with me being home every day now, right, I, right. I get to see her um, almost daily, which is good. So she's getting a little stir crazy, I think. I got right. you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, yeah, all the, all of all the older older people tend to be wanting to get out and about a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, obviously, with those, that's the group we got to be most careful with. So it's, it's very tedious. And like I said, my dad's the same way. He's ready to get out and about too. So all right, well, let's get into a little bit about your kind of your history. Um, how 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 you. How you created the firm jet sports management so you went to florida state university got your bachelor's degree when did you graduate florida state i graduated florida state in 91 okay because i i I went and i started in 91 so i was a little bit behind you i i i uh i I went to fsu for two years played a little football at fsu and ended up transferring to university of alabama birmingham to finish up my football career and got my undergraduate so we were we we were you were leaving and i was coming so uh (laughs) But uh, actually, I, I didn't go ahead. I, and then I came into to Tampa. I went to Stetson for law school over in St. Pete, and then I just moved back into Tampa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stetson's a great law school. And so, I, so, you, so when you got out of law school, did you know kind of from the get go that you wanted to get into the sports world, or did you say, or did you? I, I saw that you'd worked a couple years in the uh, kind of in the private sector. Um, what was your kind of thought process about getting into the sports industry? 
Yeah, uh, that was my thought going to going to school. Um, I think that, you know, when I originally went to law school, I wanted to, um, you know, to get into sports. I wasn't necessarily thinking on the agent side at that time. I thought I maybe wanted to get involved with the team side. Um, you know, it was a lot more difficult back that back then um, with with specifically a law degree. It would be a little bit easier um, now, but more competitive, but a little bit easier now back then from just marketing yourself to a team. But the only offer I had at that time was with the St. Louis Cardinals in their in their marketing um, and sponsorship department. And uh, my dad said, you didn't go to law school to do that. So I went <laughs> and, uh, and looked for something that I could kind of um, groom myself for, <clears throat> for lack of a better word, on, right. on, a, on attempting to, um, you know, get some experience on litigation, arbitration, mediation, that type of stuff. So I took a job with a small firm in Tampa uh, that did commercial litigation. That then led me to Foley and Lardner, um, which at the time represented Major League Baseball. That was Bud Selig's uh, firm. Okay. So it was a good step for me to, to be able to go and, and work um, for them with the thought that, you know, hopefully, you know, I would be able to get to work on some of baseball stuff eventually and then, you know, turn that into – a career in sports, but um, fate had a uh, had a different uh, path for me, and so I I, I started representing uh, Chipper Jones, who I grew up with and was a very very good friend of mine, and that's that was the start of Jet Sports Management in uh, in 1999. That's awesome. That's all. Yeah, we're gonna get to Chipper in, in just a little bit. Chipper for uh, for me, Chipper and the Braves were my team because obviously growing up here, in, I grew up here in Tampa, and so in the in the you know the late 80s, early 90s. When I was, you know, teenager, high school kid, there was no Tampa Bay Rays, so the Atlanta, the Braves were my team with the Superstation and TBS and all that. So I mean, I lived and died in the '80s with the, how bad the Braves were, and, and when they started to get good in the early '90s with Chipper and Glavin and all those guys. So I mean, I mean, that was right in my wheelhouse as far as uh, baseball goes for me. I mean, I was a, I was a diehard Atlanta Braves fan, and and. and you just followed, loved them and growing yeah. up and great to see they finally started to win some games, especially when Chipper came aboard. So what was your, th- yeah, go ahead. No, I've said no doubt. Yeah. yeah. All right. So talk to me about, so when you decided to start jet sports management, did you start it by yourself or I know you have some partners now. Did you, did you originally start with partners and did you kind of get it going by yourself? I did it by myself. I was a 29 year old lawyer at the time and uh, Chipper was actually, uh, getting ready to go into his what was what would be his MVP year, uh, Chipper's agents, um, marketing agents, were the agents for Payne Stewart, which died in the in the plane accident. Um, if you remember, right, Payne, right, yep. with So Chipper said, "Hey, would you be interested in coming on and doing my marketing stuff?" And he was going through a divorce at the time, and you know, kind of needed some some help in navigating that. So. I quit my job and, and uh, he was my one and only client at the time and, and just started to little bit by little bit build up um, you know, my resume and, and try to build up my client base uh, through the draft. Uh, later in 1999, uh, he ended up having a, a little bit of a falling out with his agent at the, at the time and uh, so I ended up taking over his contract work and, and his MVP year, which then led into you know, into his contract, um, you know, later that, later that off season. That's a pretty good start there, BB. Yeah. 
That's a pretty good start there with Mr. Chipper Jones coming out of an MVP season, going into a contract year with the Braves. That's a that's a that's a that's a nice way to get started, my man. Some people would <laughs> call that luck. <laughs> no, but all right. So talk to me a little bit about your your relationship with Chipper. I know you guys kind of grew up together in the, the land area. I mean, did you know Chipper? Did y'all play baseball together growing up? Did you? I mean, talk to, talk to us a little bit about your relationship with Chipper and how that all kind of morphed into what it is today. Yeah, so I I uh, was born in Deland, Florida, which is just inland from Daytona Beach. It's where mm-hmm. the undergrad is, obviously. And <clears throat> so I um I was born there. My dad was in the banking business, and when I was five years old, uh, he decided to get into the fern business, um, which is in Pearson, Florida. Uh, Pearson is the fern capital of the world. Uh, <laughs> they have the most uh, ferneries of anywhere in the country. Um, and, and maybe not in the world anymore with Costa Rica, but I believe it still is the firm capital of the world. So we decided to go up there and he decided to be a farmer. And, um, when I, when we moved in, we were quote unquote neighbors, um, with the Joneses and a neighbor in Pearson is about a mile away from each other. So (laughs) we, um, we grew up together. I was two years older than him and we grew up playing baseball and we're best friends and, uh, and and just you know through the, through the years um, you know just formed that relationship and yeah. said we'd always work together if if one of us made it. Of course, at that time I thought I was going to be in the big leagues too, but uh, it turned out that um, you know that he was the only big leaguer, and it turned out okay for him. I think. <laughs> yeah. Now Chipper went to did he did he not go to the bowl school in Jacksonville for high school? Is that if I recall? Yeah, my senior year uh, he transferred up to bowls. Uh, I actually played against him in my last high school game of baseball wow. and football. <laughs> so wow. we played against each other uh, for, for my last uh, game in football and, and baseball and the regionals. Um, we were in the same classification, but Jacksonville is about, about an hour and a half uh, north, obviously, right. uh, of Pearson. Um, and they were a big rival of ours, but it was a, it was a boarding school and, it was time for for him to to get up there and, and to go and and his, it was tough you know obviously being in a small community and and his parents um, you know to this day I think there's still people that you know hold a little bit of a grudge for taking him out of um, wow. of of Taylor High School but it was the right move for him he needed to be challenged yeah, and yeah. I think they saw something in him that um, you know that was special and it turned out that uh, that they were right. Yeah, for people that don't know, Chipper was the number one pick in the draft for the Braves in what, 1990, is that correct? That's right. And uh, so he was, I mean, it's not like he was just a middle-of-the-road kind of draft pick. I mean, he was the elite player in the country, and, and like I said, that's probably, you're right. That's unfortunately getting the kid out of the out of Chipper out of a small town like that to a bigger bigger market, bigger, more competition is probably the absolute right thing to do for him. And uh, for his future. And now did you, what were your, did you have baseball? Did you get drafted at all? Did you have any opportunity to play college baseball or things like that? I did not get drafted. I went to Rollins college my first year, um, played, um, on an academic and athletic scholarship there. Uh, and then, you know, it was very small. Uh, Rollins is, was, you know, a small university and, you know, I, I think it was too much, a little too much like high school for me. My sister was at Florida state at the time. I went and visited her, visited her, uh, her um, junior year of college. She was two years older than me. And, you know, I saw, man, this is what college is. And so I right. left the ball behind and, um, and went up to Florida State and ended up graduating up there. 
Awesome, awesome. Now, did you have any second thoughts when the opportunity with Chipper came about as far as, especially on a full-time basis, doing all of his contractual stuff? Did you have any second thoughts about representing Chipper because of your friendship and because and just and because maybe the circumstances that had happened with, with his marketing agents? And did you have any second thoughts there, or was it just a natural, heck yeah, let's do it, and we know we're going to do great? I wanted to do it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think to, to say that I didn't have any fear or trepidation behind you know, biting off that big of a of a responsibility would would be untrue. You know, certainly I was nervous. I was 29 years old. I was getting ready to represent one of the biggest names in baseball that you know was now in the midst of a of an MVP year. And you know, so sure, I, I think that there was some some nervousness, um, you know, hesitation. But at the same time, you know, I felt like if I didn't know the answer to something, I could go get it. And and I was able to you know, align myself or attach myself to a couple of, of elder or older agents, more experienced veteran agents that, um, you know, gave me guidance and, and, you know, along the way. And, you know, it was something that I definitely do not regret now. When I was in it, uh, I didn't have a whole heck of a lot of knowledge about what I was doing, but I, I was able to put my hands on people that could help me through. And, uh, and we ended up, you know, doing a, a pretty good job on that contract. And, um, you know, the rest is uh, kind of history. That's great. That's great. So I know, I, I know your, your firm is kind of a niche baseball firm. Did you ever have any thoughts of, you know, expanding out to the, to the basketball, the football world, or any other sports that, uh, other than just baseball? Yeah. I mean, we've had opportunities to, to represent some players in football and basketball. But at the end of the day, we wanted to be – the best at, at what we do and, and that's baseball and you know as I started to think through that and expanding into other sports you know it, it just didn't make a lot of st- a sense strategically for us number one you know it, it's what we know um, and it, it's what we've become good at, at doing uh, and then number two you know to 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 thin ourselves out and our responsibilities it was just something that I wasn't interested in, in doing and then finally you know, I, I like off seasons. So right, with right. getting into other sports, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't provide you the opportunity to to represent the guys in the sport that you're you're ultimately in because a lot of important things happen in the off season. And I like the natural flow and calendar of the baseball season because it does allow me the opportunity to get out to travel a ton. Uh, but then in the off season in the fall. Um, I do get to, to be home and we get to work on contracts and arbitration right, right. and things that I like, you know, and enjoy doing. And so I like that natural flow of the baseball season. And by the time the summer comes around, you know, in September and then, you know, we get into the fall, you know, I'm ready to be home for a little bit. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk about managers and kind of front office guys. I know, is there a kind of a de- line of delineation as far as agents that represent players don't represent managers, GMs, those type? Or is it a kind of a natural intersection where some guys represent both players and managers and players and GMs and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, GMs, not as much. GMs typically will use uh, lawyers because obviously they have a negotiating background anyways. Um, They will have, you know, some of them will have agents um, that know that market a little bit better and able to collect those contracts and know what particular GMs are making. But it's obviously there's only 30 of them, so it's a pretty – tight-knit group. Managers mm-hmm. are something different, right? That's a different animal, especially now with a lot of these uh, managers and, and coaching staff being ex-players. Obviously, they had agents at the time. And so right. uh, 
that that most of them end up keeping the agents that they had uh, while they were playing. Um, some will go to firms that specialize, um, you know, in that field. Uh, it is, you know, it's it's not frowned upon by the union, um, but it's you know something that they do, you know, take a look at um, with um, right managers and and representing them, especially with you know us being on the player side and managers having such close contact and coaches having such contact with them. It's just a, it's a natural thing that, that just happens because of the representation of them as, as players. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now do most, do most position coach guys, you know, the, 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 the third base coach, the, the bullpen coach, do all those guys typically have, have agents or is it more just the manager? Once a guy becomes a manager, he gets an agent. Yeah. I wouldn't say most at all. Um, I, I think that, Everybody has somebody that they lean on, whether or not they're agent or not. There's certainly somebody they're getting information from. Um, you know, right. there's been some managers that don't have agents, you know, of record. Uh, but I think that um, that everybody has has somebody behind the scenes that they're leaning on, whether it's an attorney, whether it's an agent, whatever the case might be. You know, it, it always seems like um, that they'll have somebody in their corner when it comes to just collecting information and making sure that you know, their career path is going the way that it should. Awesome. Great, great. All right. So lots of people in the, in the you know, the fans like me and, and people we talk to all the time thinking about being an agent's the coolest thing in the world, man. I'd love to do that. Give me, give me, a, give me some uh, requirements of what it takes to be an agent from a legal perspective, from a certification perspective. I know different states have different things and different requirements from a sport, from a major league baseball perspective. What are the requirements for you? Whether it's an annual requirement or a, you know every couple of years you got to recertify, give, me, give us an idea of what it, the logistics of being an agent require. Yeah, so you don't need any educational background. There's nothing that's required. You don't have to be a lawyer. It certainly helps to be a lawyer with the contract work, um, you know that that we do and and reviewing a lot of the contract language, understanding what's going on, you know, with the CBA. But it's certainly not required to to be uh, a lawyer. Um, there's a lot of uh, agents that are not lawyers, um, quite frankly. So, I mean, that that's certainly not a requirement. To represent, to be um, certified with the union, you have to represent a player on the 40-man roster, just one. Uh, then wow. you have to, at this point, you have to take a test uh, on the rules and regulations of the union in order to be certified, pass that test, uh, and then you're certified. And you are a certified agent, you know, at that point after a background check. Uh, in this particular states, it's different. Um, so, the states don't care if you're representing a 40-man roster guy, a hockey guy, a basketball guy, a football guy. It doesn't matter, you know, to the state. All they care about is that you're licensed in that state um, to do business. And that is every state. So every state that we go into to recruit a player, we have to be licensed in. Um, most of them do not require uh, a test. Uh, I would say a, a large majority do not require any type of test. It's simply a fee. Um, some of them will require a bond, um, you know, to, to bond against, you know, you doing any, any right. damage um, to any university or any to any student athlete. Um, but, you know, from from the most part, that's it. Uh, you know, a lot of it is fees. A lot of it is paperwork uh, and a lot of it is licensing uh, in order to um, to keep that up if either every every year or every other year to make sure that all of those things are in place. And if you do not license yourself in the states in which you're doing business. Obviously, you open yourself up, um, you know, to liability. Correct. Correct. All right. Great. All right. So let's talk about you expand. You 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 start the firm at 29 by yourself. You get chipper. 
Uh, you got a couple other people. Talk to me about the, the decision to expand and bring in some partners and some other people into the firm um, and give us a little background on that. Sure. So I, I got to about in 2003, I got to about 17 clients. 2001 was really the, the first year that I was able to make an impact uh, in the draft. Had two first rounders, uh, one of which is still my longest standing client now that Chipper has um, has retired. But 2001 was the first year I, I had a couple of first rounders in the draft. 2002, you know, from that draft class, I represented, you know, Jonathan Broxton and Brian McCann. Jeff Mathis was the, the player from 2001, is still the catcher for the Rangers. And so I had, right. a, had some good momentum going, you know, at that point. And in 2003, going into 2004, I had built a relationship with a, a guy by the name of Hank Sargent, who was an assistant scouting director, national cross-checker for the Anaheim Angels. At, the at that time, Disney was kind of selling um, – uh, the, the angels and, you know, Hank right. thought he might be on the, on the way out, you know, with that change of ownership. And so at that time I had dealt with him on negotiating with Jeff Mathis, um, with, who was drafted and signed with the angels. So I asked Hank to come on, um, with me and he did in 2004, uh, we built up uh, to about 35 guys, uh, heading into 2007. Uh, at that point, I hired a gentleman by the name of Al Getz, who was an area scout with the, the Braves. And again, you can see that what I was doing was trying to get guys that had experience in baseball talent evaluation. Right, right. Because we wanted to build our firm exclusively through the draft, from the draft up. And and then to you know represent those players, much like I had done you know at the time. That was really our focus, was very grassroots. So Al came on in 2007. Um, we built up to about 50 guys uh, because they had done such a good job. I needed help on the legal side. I knew a lawyer, I had known a lawyer for a long time um, that his firm was kind of breaking up. He had some existing clients, um, big league clients at the time, and he was going to help me tremendously, you know, on the legal side with contracts and arbitration and things of that nature, recruiting materials, be able to put that stuff together. And so he came on um, with us, and at the same time, I hired. Uh, somebody to, to come on and do um, uh, client services. So that was Andrew Lowenthal and then Stephanie Corey, who had worked with the, the Redskins and had just moved to Florida because her husband was getting his master's in, in Tampa, luckily for me. Um, so she, she was able to come on with us. Since then, I've hired uh, four other people. Um, to, uh, to actually, yeah, four, yeah, four other people. So have uh, Tyler Pasternicki, and Blaze Salter, both with baseball, uh, professional baseball backgrounds. Again, just younger guys that had played the game. Then Alex Ott, yep. uh, I hired as a, who, who, he interned with the Major League Baseball Players Association in arbitration. He's a lawyer, um, very, you know, very educated, very intelligent. And, and again, just to supplement the baseball side and then um, hired um, uh, a girl to uh, come on and take Stephanie's role as client services. And Stephanie now works a lot with our big league clients and their everyday needs, foundational work and, and things of that nature. So all in all now we have nine of us um, and, you know, we built very slowly, you know, we only have 80 clients. So, you know, you can see over 20 years, we only have 80 clients. So we're very, very boutique uh, and we try to be very selective in, in the guys that we go after. And because of that, you know, we've really built our firm around quality as opposed to quantity where we're about a third of the size of some of the, you know, biggest outfits in baseball. Awesome. That's great. That's, um, 
Now, do you obviously you're in Tampa? Is there how many of your how many of those nine are in Tampa relative? And 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 more importantly, if they're not in Tampa, how do you as the CEO kind of manage people in different locations? And I mean, do you have a central office somewhere in another city, or do you, or do you just use Tampa as kind of the hub? Tampa is our home base. Um, myself, Hank, and then Tyler Pastor Nikki, who played with the Braves um, for, for yep. several years, and some other teams. Who he's our younger agent. We're all in Tampa. Uh, Ashley Foss, who works out of Lakeland, um, which is the latest hire that came on for Stephanie, lives in Lakeland. And then um, we have Blaze Salter, uh, who works up in, in Michigan. Andrew Lowenthal is in uh, in New Jersey. Alex is uh, in Pennsylvania. And then Stephanie has now moved out of Tampa and lives back up in Delaware um, with her family. So we're spread out. We're very, you know, eastern seaboard based for the most part. Uh, we, we typically do not go, um, you know, past the Mississippi River. So we'll get into the Midwest uh, a little bit, um, but we kind of stop at Texas and then up in the upper Midwest region um, with Minnesota, Mich- Michigan, uh, Illinois, you know, Illinois, all of those areas, which is what Blaze covers. So we're spread all out. Um, you know, we, we will typically get together, all of us, um, a few times a year. Uh, but there might be other times we work collaboratively a lot um, on players. So I will I will partner a, a, a older, uh, more experienced agent like myself or Hank or Al or Andrew with Blaze or Alex or Tyler right. uh, in order to to recruit a guy. So those recruiting trips happen all of the time, you know, all over um, the eastern part of the U.S., uh, up and down from Florida all the way up to Maine. And then as far over as, as Texas and, um, you know, in Minnesota. So in a good, so in a typical month, tell me when the recruiting season is for you. Is it more the couple months before the the amateur drafts? I know the amateur draft was about a month, a couple weeks back. Is that when you're big recruiting, or do you, are you recruiting year round? Oh, it's year round. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I first started, listen, I mean, when I first started, the recruiting happened the summer, the fall, or the spring before their draft year. Right. Now happens as early as going into their 10th grade year. I mean, that, that's how aggressive it has gotten. And, it, and it's simply because the more and more agents that, that there are out there, uh, the more and more competition there is. And there's a sure. big push. And, you know, I, I would almost say this um, pressure for families and kids to get agents or advisors uh, in order to help them through the process, uh, many times either in correlation with or in connection with them choosing a school which seems just crazy um but that's that's where that's where we that's where we are um you know sometimes players will get advisors before they even choose a school um so you know it's it's kind of gotten a little wacky um but that's where the industry has gone and if you do not start recruiting a player when he is on the radar um then you're late you won't have yeah, you won't have a chance. And that's where having, you know, the guys with the baseball background, having Hank and Al and Tyler and Blaze is, is right. extremely important because you can see a guy, they have rankings that are out there and, and we will use those as guidelines. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we're, we base our decision. You want to see the kid play. So we might have a kid that, you know, is number three in the rankings uh, and Hank goes in the season. He says, listen, this is a kid that I feel has, matured very quickly and is better than everybody around him, but he's going to plateau out. So right. we, won't, we won't recruit somebody like that. And, and a lot of times, 
um, that works to our advantage to have that experience uh, to be able to evaluate, um, you know, the, the particular player and uh, and certainly his family from a fit standpoint. Now, in the, in the in the high school, college, where obviously for those of you that don't know, baseball wise, guys either have two options to get drafted. Typically, they can either get drafted coming out of high school or they have to wait till the end of their third year. Is that correct, BB? That's correct. They can, the, the, uh, the third choice is a junior college, in which case they can be drafted after each year. Um, but those, gotcha. those are typically the, the decisions that are made is either to dra- be drafted after and go after, uh, after their senior year of high school or after their junior year of college, or if they're at a particular advanced age, they can be what's called redshirt eligible, uh, or, I'm sorry, sophomore eligible, uh, in which case they can be drafted after their sophomore year of college if they're, if they're an older kid in that grade. So your your involvement with high school kids are you uh, you have to what what can what are the things you can't do when you're when you're dealing with a high school kid as opposed because because that kid could still say hey I'm going to go play at Florida State of course what what are the things you can and can't do in during that little year or two period of of your recruitment as far as from a, from an agent perspective you can yeah. you can act as an advisor but you can't do what that's correct you you you're bound by the NCAA regulations so you can't give them anything of value you cannot they cannot agree to have you as their agent they can't sign anything you know it the, the typical rules of a student athlete under the NCAA regulations the NCAA has changed their approach um, from when I first started which was they have to act as an advisor role there can be no communication with the team uh, that has now changed uh, and the power five con- Conferences have, you know, have um, have adopted all of those regulations and will now allow an advisor to actually speak um, directly to teams and negotiate on uh, on a player and family's behalf. But if they do not end up signing, then they have to terminate that relationship and pay the uh, the agent or the attorney for their fee and for their services. Uh, And then they will go to college and. Uh, you know, in theory, will you will then re-recruit them to represent them out of college? Awesome. Yeah, because I was going to that that was my big question because I'm sure you ha- you deal with tons and tons of guys that whether it's whether it's a dispute over the signing bonus or or what position they got drafted as far as round. You got a lot of guys that I'm sure probably consider, hey, I'm a fourth round draft pick. Do I go play at Florida State or do I go sign with the Braves or those type things? So how yeah. that relationship mends itself is probably very important to you. It is. You know, baseball is the only sport where you don't declare eligible for the draft. And so kids out of high school and even out of college don't put themselves into the draft. Uh, The teams just draft them and then they're given the opportunity to decide whether to sign or to go to school or go back to college, um, whatever the case might be. Now, how do you handle recruiting internationally? Obviously, down the Dominican and and, and, and Mexico and those areas where where, where baseball is so huge. How do you navigate that those waters where the rules are a little bit more murky and the little and the shadiness is a little higher than it may be in the United States? You know, we made a decision early on to um, to concentrate in the areas that we're we're good at, and 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 those areas be- were Florida. Uh, then we went into the Southeast um, because we thought, you know, with with Chipper's name and and obviously mm-hmm. our footprint, you know, in Florida and Georgia, we could expand out a little bit uh, more in the Southeast. Uh, and then at that point, once we became a more established firm uh, in the draft and then and representing professional players, you know, we started to expand a little bit further. And you can see now that, you know, we're really in the eastern and central part of the U.S. I don't anticipate we'll 
go outside of that at all, um, you know, unless it's a perfect fit of something a little bit further west. But we we made a decision very early on that we were going to to be really great at, at, at where we were. And I just haven't found, you know, the perfect fit uh, for, you know, diving into the international market. Again, we wanted to be really great at where we were. And if you look at, you know, the, the drafts that, that we've had and, and just the drafts in general, there is a large percentage of professional baseball players on the 40-man rosters um, that come from the areas in which we're recruiting. So we've decided, you know, as a firm from a philosophical standpoint to really be um, to concentrate and to be really great in, in that area. If I wouldn't say that I would would not do it, uh, but I, I will say that you know our focus right now is is on the draft and 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 representing uh, players that hopefully will get to the big leagues in that area. Yeah, for those of the, the for the audience out there, people don't realize how, what a hotbed. For, for example, Tampa is for baseball. Tampa is a monster hotbed historically for players, guys like Steve Garvey, Wade Boggs, Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield, Dwight Gooden. I mean, just boatloads of, of all-stars and Hall of Fame-type players have come out of this area. Tony La Russa's from this area from way back. But, I mean, just Tampa from a from a baseball perspective is just a hotbed, and obviously Florida, Georgia's huge. Uh, like you said, the, the east coast of the country where the warm weather typically is, uh, baseball is just a beast when it comes to amateur talent and things like that. So – all right, so talk to me about. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give the audience a list of some of your guys: Chris Sale, Corey Kluber, McCann, Chipper Jones, Byron Buxton. Which I'm gonna tell you a little little nugget about Byron. Gavin Lux, uh, Charlie Morton, Kyle Seeger, Zach Wheeler. Give me a cool kind of recruiting recruiting story related to one of those kind of guys. You don't have to use their name, but just a cool pitch that you had to. You know, maybe an awkward thing you had to do or not do. To, to recruit one of those guys over time. Yeah, it's funny because every recruitment is different and you have to find the the hot button. I mean, you hear Bobby Bowden and guys like that that, you know, would go over the old recruiting wars and, you know, Bobby would always say he goes to the mom, right? Um, you know, because he thinks especially in southern families, you know, that that the mom had a lot carried a lot of weight. And so, you know, I think as as you get into each recruitment the one thing that um, you know you have to understand is that each one is different, and and you know what particular person or you know what methodology that that you take you know is, is always going to be at the forefront of, of every recruitment because they're none of them are the same. You know it was the in the good old days, right? Where I say the good old days when we first started, I had a kid in two thousand and one by the name of McKay McBride who was a first rounder for the Braves. And he pitched in the big leagues for for a little bit, but he lived in South Georgia and, you know, had a very hard recruitment of him. He was very sought after, ended up getting him very late in in the spring, right before the draft um, and represented him for for his career. But there was another kid in that area that was about 20 minutes away and, you know, had had got a meeting set up with him, um, you know, the very um, rural uh, community you know hunting and fishing was really all that that they did um, in South Georgia and I walked into the house and I had my books all ready to go and ready to, to do my pitch and you know they just asked me if I wanted to eat some dinner and so we sat down and you know had uh, had fried chicken and sweet tea and green beans and you know everything you would expect and so we eat and we're just talking and you know I, I start my my pitch so to speak and they're like, listen, you, you know, you're more than more than welcome to do that. But 
if you if you represent McKay McBride, you're good enough, you know, for us. And that turned out to be Jonathan Broxton, you know, who had over a 10 year <laughs> big league career, wow. made over 50 million dollars in the big leagues. Um, and that was that was how recruiting went back then. Now, um, not so much. You know, now it's, um, you know, with the with the advent of, of and the development of travel baseball, how much ex, ex, how much exposure these kids are getting, how much they're getting recruited, how much love they're getting mm-hmm. from, from schools. It just doesn't work that way anymore. And so you're fighting and clawing for everything that, um, you know, that that you get, you know, and in each guy that you get is, 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 is just in a different way. Corey Kluber. You know, we got because he went to Stetson University. He was a Texas kid from Coppell, Texas. Um, and, and because of Stetson and, and Chipper and his dad's background at, at Stetson, it was literally sitting in a room and it was done. You know, Chris Sale was a, a kid that we didn't get until after he had an agent in, in, in high school um, and then ended up uh, letting that agent go. And we had a relationship um, with with his local coach in Lakeland through Hank, who who coached at Florida Southern for many years, and you know ended up being a uh, being a client. Byron Buxton was you know an unbelievable recruitment that lasted over a year, uh, where everybody and and their um, you know everybody and their brother were recruiting this kid because of how special of a talent he was. So I mean, he, he, like I said, each recruitment is different. Mike Zanino uh, was the number three pick in the same pick and the same draft that that Byron Buxton was the number two pick his dad was a scout Hank was already embedded in the scouting community uh, and Mike Zanino probably would have signed for three or four hundred thousand dollars out of high school but nobody would give it to him so he goes to University of Florida ends up being Golden Spikes winner um, Johnny Bench Award winner and signs for four million bucks you know so it's just it's odd I mean you know it's equal parts luck and connections and you know, trying to, 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 to do your pitch because at the end of the day, you you have to sell, sell your, your personal services. So every recruiting is just, is just completely different. And that's what makes this industry so exciting is that each and individual family recruitment is different. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you the, my Byron Buxton story. A, a really good friend of mine was the parks and rec director in Baxley where Byron was from. So he knew Byron and grew up with Byron during the parks and rec world when Byron was growing up forever. And he, they were really close. And actually my, my good friend who just passed away about within the last year, he would go, he, Byron would, would hook him up with some minor league. If he was in the area, as far as minor league tickets and things like that. So Byron and my friend, Michael Coleman were re- we're really close as far as do, do, with Byron growing up and where he grew up in Baxley. And, and like you said, he was a huge, he, I mean, I remember everybody, he was a huge, uh, you know, prospect and all that. And he's, and he's, he's well on his way to having an excellent major league career for sure. So it, uh, it's just funny. interesting how. Yeah. And South Georgia is an amazing, you know, an amazing yeah. for, for hot bed for baseball, for talent, for, for people uh, in general. And that's one thing that I've learned about the Midwest is, Completely different area, um, you know, a, a lot of times completely different people, but the same value system. You know, I love recruiting in the Midwest. I love it. Uh, just like I love recruiting in South in South Georgia and Alabama and, you know, places like that, that, you know, the kids are right. just, they're very grounded, you know, for the most part. And I have found that to be very much true in the Midwest um, as well. And so I'm happy we're up in that area because we've we've had some exposure now to some tremendous families and kids up there. 
how do you uh, when you when you identify when, when how do you identify or how do you be made aware of kind of through the grapevine that hey so and so major league guy may be looking for a new agent hey he's not happy where he's at what are some of the things that go into recruiting a guy that's already in the major leagues maybe or are right on the cusp that maybe isn't happy with the representation he's getting now that he's maybe looking for somebody else it's usually through players uh, that that you have um, we don't do a lot of that. You know, again, as I said uh, originally, you know, most of our recruitment, I'd say 90% of our players are out of the draft. Now, we do have some guys that we got um, that were already um, professional players, like Mikey Miner, you know, is one that, that we started representing when he was with the Braves. Uh, and it was strictly just because he, you know, became unhappy with his representation. And that's through, it was through another player. Um, so it just kind of, it kind of depends. There are agencies out there. Uh, that that do almost exclusively uh, on the lateral side, what I would call lateral side, which is they already have an agent. Uh, it's a you know it's a tougher recruitment because you know that you know you're 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 taking a player away from somebody many times a right. small agency, right. um, you know, and and a lot of the larger agencies really thrive upon that. So I've tried to stay away from it. I'm not going to say that we don't do it because we have done it um, in the past. Uh, but it, it's, you know, our focus really is the draft and, and trying to build from the foundation up, you know, to have guys like Zach Wheeler that we've represented since he was 17 years old and have him right. as a first round draft pick, the number six pick in the draft, go through several arbitrations, win an arbitration hearing for him, you know, and then negotiate the $118 million right. contract that we did. That's really where I see our you know that that's our niche right to, to take a kid from 16 17 years old all the way through the end of his career that's what that's what we're aspiring to do there's certainly going to be opportunities for us you know to to represent a player like mikey minor and we're certainly never going to turn that opportunity down uh, but our focus is really going to be uh in the draft that's awesome now do you have a target number of number of guys you're looking to sign a year or is that kind of year to year how, how do you evaluate <laughs> Let's say you got 20 guys that are in the mix as far as you guys are recruiting. Is there a number, kind of a ballpark number each year that you try to hit? It is a battle that I fight every day with our guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, our focus in being smaller and being boutique and setting our, our ourselves apart from the larger agencies that are representing 200 to 250 players, um, you know, is a constant struggle because our guys that are scouts that have background in, in scouting – you know, like to see things in guys that, man, if he just does this, he has a chance to be this, right, uh, right. you know, and, and it's that it's that type of comparison of a left handed starter that throws 88. You're like, man, he could be Tom Glavin. Well, what we don't realize is there's a hundred thousand other guys that are left handed <laughs> uh, that throw 88 that will not be Tom Glavin. And so you're constantly yes. fighting, you know, that that um, that urge, you know, to see something. You know, that if man, if he just fills in this piece or if he just grows a little bit or, you know, if he can find this or get to his power, you know, and those are the discussions that we have every day. And as you get more and, and more agents in particular areas, you know, you have a tendency to to get to get bigger. Um, and that's just not something that that is our focus. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really drill down on these younger guys that that our focus is really. You know, the guys that we think are first round picks, either out of high school or out of college, you know, certainly that's not going to always be the case. But we want to beat where we want to win the game on the recruiting battle is evaluation. 
Uh, and that's both on the field and off the field, you know, to get the right players. And, and that will always be our focus. So I fight, like I said, I fight that battle every day with our guys because, you know, they're, um, you know, they're, they're agents and, and they want to be successful and they don't want to miss on a guy. So their, I think their um, tendency is, is to, to want to try to get as many guys as, as they can, but they understand and appreciate and want the same things I do to, to be able to represent less. And, and in our case, certainly uh, less is more. Now, just ballpark, how many, how many, how many agents are there in Major League Baseball? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I don't know that actual number, but I can tell you, uh, at thousand one point there were, there were as many agents as there were players. So, um, there's a lot, you know, I mean, and, and a lot of these cert, you you can be certified as a general certification, which means you can represent players uh, on the 40 man roster, talk to teams, GMs, things of that nature. And then there's limited certification guys that are really recruiters, uh, and that's, you know, those are the, the types of guys that, um, you know, are, are out there uh, in mass. You know, it's a lot of the bigger agencies have as many as 18 to 25 recruiters, you know, that are all over the country that are that are recruiting um, for the draft. And then they turn them over to a, a general certified agent that actually represents them. Uh, but it's a numbers game, you know, at this point, I would tell you that you know, amongst probably five or six firms, they represent uh, a very large percentage, you know, not a majority, but I bet you close to 40%, 40, 50% of, of the firms. And then, you know, there's guys that um, there's firms, individual and companies that might represent one, two, three. Uh, but then even within those firms, there's limited certified agents that are out recruiting um, and you know, you got to keep in mind 3% of players that are drafted, make it to the big leagues and right, almost right. every player has an agent now, uh, or an advisor in the draft. It's just that a lot of those guys don't typically make it. I mean, there's 750 big leaguers on opening day on, on July 24th, um, of this year, you know, there's 1200 players that are on the 40 man roster. Right. And you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of limited and general and general certified agents. All right, so that's a perfect transition. So now let's transition to kind of the, the, the news of the day of yesterday and today. And we finally have a, a an agreement in place, it seems like. And um, just kind of give me your general thoughts about the whole, just the whole last couple, two or three weeks in general related to the owners and the players negotiating games, you know, player, how many guys are on the roster, playoff shares, all that kind of stuff. Just give me your kind of just some general thoughts about that. I think, listen, I, I think that the, the ordinary fan, and these are educated fans and just the more casual fans, um, a lot of times don't see, you know, the broader picture. They just see bringing baseball back. Um, and I totally get that and, and totally appreciate and respect that, you know, that thought, because that's all that we all want, right, is, is for baseball to be back and to be back as quickly as possible, especially with what, you know, the country's going through with, you know, a lot of these protests and, um, you know, a lot of these movements and, and certainly the pandemic. So, I mean, I get it totally. Um, I completely and, and wholeheartedly get, you know, that sentiment. But, you know, you have to go back many, many years to see what's going on presently with the labor negotiations with the union and, and with Major League Baseball and, and, you know, go back as far as even 1994 and before that, you know, with, with what was happening with some of the dynamics uh, behind 
those negotiations and to kind of see where, you know, where things have gone financially and, and with, um, you know, with, with certain labor issues that, um, you know, that have, that have happened over the last 20 to, to 50 years. And so those things are always in the background. Anytime the union and Major League Baseball is talking, those things are there. The last CBA negotiations, you know, they, they're there. They're that current that runs underneath. The next CBA negotiation after 2021 is there. Um, so those right, issues right. And, and those feelings and that strategy is always going to be there. And so, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, there's a lot, there was a lot of frustration about how long it took. Um, there was certainly a lot of, uh, of a lot of frustration with fans uh, about, you know, a, a black eye on baseball. And, you know, we've, we've had that sentiment before, certainly, um, you know, many times, even when I've just been an agent um, and even right before with the 94 strike, um, you know, that they're, they're, that, that those are going to happen. And, and at some point, you know, baseball fans with, all of the different options that they have uh, are are going to um, you know turn away little bit by little bit to to the game, and that's something that I think the union and, and Major League Baseball needs to you know certainly appreciate and understand uh, that every little time something like this happens, you know you're going to get a baseball fan that that you're losing, and and that's just not acceptable for the game. Uh, but at the same time, you know I, I would just you know, tell, tell fans to, to hang in there because, you know, the, the owners and, and the, specifically the players um, do appreciate and, and love and respect the game of baseball. It's just that they have to do it with a business background. Um, and I was glad that, that we were able to, to get baseball going. I don't think it was under the you know, under an, an, another agreement um, that um, that we wanted it to be, but we have baseball. It's at a it's at a season uh, length that at least is digestible um, to fans, and that is, there's going to be some excitement for sure. You know, there's going to be teams that are in this thing that you know would normally right, be right. in this thing, and, and I think sixty game sprint. Yeah, that, and I think that there's going to be some excitement again. You know, I I don't want to take fans for granted and and say oh they'll forget about it when the excitement of this gets going because i think that's a bad philosophy to take you know but at the same time you know i think we got to a point at least from the player's standpoint um to where they took a stand on a particular issue on on getting paid for the games that um they were paid that they play uh and they took a stand and galvanized themselves around that uh, and then ultimately, Major League Baseball made the best decision um, for their interest in baseball to set a 60-game schedule. And um, and here we go. So, you know, if you wanted to know specifically about some of the things um, that, that we're in that are going to be in this agreement or the resumption of play, there's no agreement, obviously. The, the only agreement, and I don't mean to get into the weeds too much, but the only agreement no, that exists is, is March 26th, obviously, which – you know, would set forth a lot of the terms between um, between the players, and now Major League Baseball has instituted a, a 60 day game schedule unilaterally, um, with no additional agreement on the terms. And the players certainly give up something um, when when that um, you know when that occurred without agreeing again to um, you know to to the resumption of the season, like playoff shares, right, and right, right, of that nature. That um, you know that they'll certainly give up, but at the end of the day. Um, we live to, you know, do we live to talk about some of those issues another day and, and we'll cross that bridge when in, uh, when we get to it, which that'll be a year. That'll be a year from now. <laughs> yeah. After 2021, um, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll do that. And, and hopefully it doesn't last that long. Right. I mean, there's right, still, right. 
there's still issues that um, you know are, are are available for 2021, which hopefully gets us back into to bargaining, which might you know potentially lead um, you know to something else. I can tell you wholeheartedly that both union leadership and I believe Major League Baseball leadership understands that the appetite for any kind of long drawn out uh, negotiation after the CBA it, is not going to be well received, and I think no. that. They, I think that they understand that. Uh, I think that, uh, that their approach will be, you know, to try to get something done. I do not think they just walk away from the negotiating table, um, you know, until after the season in 2021. I think there are still issues that are still out there that can lead to further negotiation. But, you know, that that's why we'll, we'll leave that in their hands to, um, you know, to hopefully uh, work out. But there's going to be a lot of new things that, that happen this season. It's going to be a very weird um, season for players and certainly for fans. Um, you know, the, the atmosphere, the energy is, is not going to be there for, for players because there's not, not going to be fans, at least initially, um, in, in the stands. So that's going to be a weird environment for them. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're going to see, you know, the, the best in the world competing on the field. And that's what's important. Now, a couple, couple things on that. Now, are you, do you, will you, as an agent, particularly to your guys, will you reach out to them and say, hey, guys, obviously we all know what the climate's been with the with the acrimony. Will you tell your guys, hey, spend a little extra time when you are out in the community. If you if you see a kid, if you see a family asking you for do you, do, will you make those kind of things to try, to try to get your guys to do a little more of the positive? You know, that they're probably already doing that, but just to be keep them ultra ultra aware of kind of the acrimony and some of the, the sentiment that there might be with it with the normal fan. Uh, in in their community, whichever community they're living in, just to hey, take that extra step, take that extra picture, take that extra autograph. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every every week of the pandemic and every week this was going on, we would have either emails or calls with our players to kind of keep them abreast of what was what was happening in the negotiations and in my discussions with the union leadership and and other people in the industry. And so, you know, on each of those calls, you know, it was it was constantly telling them what the, the, the light at the end of this tunnel was going to look like. You know, obviously, the, the pandemic causes, you know, some additional problems, which is the lack of interaction, you know, with fans. And that's one of the things that um, that we talked a lot about is you're going to go to the park. You're going to feel like you're in a bubble. You're not going to have any interaction. You're going to go home. It's not like you're going to be going out a lot to restaurants or you know, anything of that nature, the, you know, appearances will probably be very limited. So 2021 mm -hmm. becomes extremely, you know, important for you to, to, to again, try to repair that relationship with the fan. Uh, and I think Major League Baseball and the players and specifically our players, you know, understand that that is going to be incumbent upon them to do. It's not the fans problem. You know, it's Major League Baseball's problem and it's the players problem to earn the respect right. And the right for those fans to sit in those stands come 2021 or hopefully sometime this year, you know, if the individuals Limited. decide, yeah. you know, yeah. that, um, that they will allow a certain amount of fans in. But listen, 20, there's going to be nothing normal about 2020. I think everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. everybody appreciates that. So once 2021 hits, um, you know, I, I think that, that there will certainly be a recognition on players and major league baseball part, you know, that, um, we went through all of this. 2020 was a trying year for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, both personally and in, in the sports industry. And I think you'll see a huge outreach 
from Major League Baseball in general, but you will definitely see an outreach from Jet Sports my Jet Sports awesome. clients. That's, sure. that's, that's great. That's great. All right, I want to transition to kind of a couple things off the field, and then we'll wrap it up here. Talk to me about. I know you guys. You, you know, big part of this of being of being an agent is is the relationship with the with the, each player. Talk to us about some of the things that maybe the fans or the audience doesn't realize that you guys do off the field for these guys, whether it's you know endorsements, whether it's moving, helping guys move when they get traded, you know, financial services, just navigating the life of a pro athlete. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot more than negotiating contracts. Let's put it that way, especially for us, you know, being a, a full service, smaller boutique type of agency, you know, a lot of our, our sales pitch, a lot of what we do, you know, ultimately in trying to, to make that a reality for our players is to kind of do everything for them, anything that they, that they might need. Uh, and that has changed, you know, uh, over time, you know, when, when I first started doing this, it was really about getting them an apartment, getting them bank cameras set up, um, and then getting them, you know, a, a place to live, you know, when the, where they were going, and that was it. Now the representation side um, has grown so large that you know it, it's an everyday type of thing to where you're doing something, you know, for them um, every day, and that's why where every hire that I make is a value hire. You know, it's a value add for us. You know, with it with its whether it's moving Steph, you know, into you know, the, the, the big league and uh, environment and to work more with our families either, you know, hey, how's everything with your insurance needs? Is your car insurance okay? You know, what's going on with your estate planning? You know, you, you just had a child, you know, right, are, right. are your insurance needs taken care of? Some of the things, you know, financially um, that, that, they, that she will work with the financial advisor that really tries to ease some of the pressure off of what they have going off off of the field. Family travel is a huge, another huge part, you know, of this for us, you know, to make sure that, you know, families are set up to be able to, to travel, um, you know, to help people as they come in to get hotel rooms, you know, to do all those things, just again, to make that life easier for um, both the, the player uh, and their family and their wife uh, to make sure that um, everything is taken care of, you know, on that front. Another big area that, that we've really put a lot of resources into is social media platform, personal branding. You know, players um, are very into to that now and, you know, they, they want to build their own personal brand uh, as opposed to just being under a, a particular team. So that's become something that's very important, whether it's creating a YouTube channel or making sure their Instagram and social media platforms are, are on point. We do that, you know, um, we do that ourselves, obviously. We just came out with, you know, a play ball video that we worked real hard on over the last, you know, five or six weeks on our, our Instagram and to be able to push out to our social media um, channels through both our players and, and ourselves. Um, and, and our players help us, you know, with, with doing that because they want to see that type of stuff. They want to see that you have the capabilities, not just to negotiate their contract, you know, to be able to provide them, you know, with the resources um, and the platforms mm -hmm. to do things off of the field. Uh, and then, you know, some of the more important things, you know, that, that really are my focus, which is making sure they get with a financial advisor that, you know, is going to preserve their capital um, and we talk right, a lot right. about that. And, you know, don't worry about making your, you know, 15 to 20 percent gains in the market. Make sure you're preserving your capital. That signing bonus is, is now your nest egg, you know, because a lot of times, 
you know, their, their incomes is an inverted curve over most Americans or most people in the world where we're making most of our money later in our life. They might be making all the money they ever make, you know, for the most part up till 35 years old. And then they go out and get a job, but the income stream is so substantially front loaded to make sure that they understand those concepts. And then obviously the legal work, like I said, with some of the estate planning, making sure their insurance um, needs are, are covered, you know, making mm-hmm. sure if they're doing businesses or have businesses that they're forming outside that we're involved um, with those things uh, to making sure that, um, you know, they're protected from a liability standpoint uh, and then to go over a lot of those um, things. And then obviously, the, you know, the last part is just making sure that they're aligning themselves companies with companies um, that, that really support them. Uh, and then to make sure that, um, you know, that they're fulfilling their needs, both on the equipment side, memorabilia side, uh, any type of appearances or endorsements. I mean, those are things that are going on behind the scenes at all time. And then, quite frankly, being a, you know, being a big brother or being an uncle or being a second dad to these right, guys right. Um, when they go through tough times. Game, baseball is a failure, is a game of failure. Uh, and these guys will fail a lot. Um, you know, you're considered a Hall of Famer if you succeed three out of ten times so, as a hitter. So, you know, that that's um, that's something that people don't understand is is baseball. Many times you're failing and you everybody, including Chipper, will go through, you know, times where they're just in horrible slumps. Chris Sale was at the top of the world, you know, not too long ago. And, and then he has right, a bad right, year, right, right. some injuries. Now he has Tommy John surgery you know, where he's just signed a big contract and all of that stuff weighs extremely heavily on somebody, specifically somebody like him, you know, so just being there for, for them and their families at, at every step of the way and really being that full service agency that not just negotiates their contract, which is the most important thing because it makes all of these other things um, you know, run, but um, at the same time to be able to, you know, to, to supplement that for them. Yeah, like I said, like you just said, and, and there there are probably times when your guy when your guy on the field is killing it on the field, but he's having some issues off the field, whether it's family related, whether it's uh, you know, girlfriend, husband, you know, what, whatever the, whatever the issue is that we don't ever see is that uh, that you as the agent have access to to be able to help soothe those things. Again, he might be killing it on the field, but just everything going through everyday life that that we all go through uh, makes it tough. Yeah, I learned that with Chipper, you know, I mean, he's going through an MVP season and, you know, going through the worst personal time, you know, of his life. Um, you know, the, those, those are things that people don't see a lot of times, you know, that, that you have to help navigate. Everybody has tough times, right? Everybody understands that. But sometimes we put these guys on a pedestal when they're on a field and performing and, and we forget that they're living personal lives as well with a, a lot of times. Um, maybe even more stress because of of what's going on, you know, around them. And and certainly, I'm not taking away from the amount of money that these guys make because it's a extraordinary amount of money. But the pressures that are are placed on them, you know, and competing at that level, uh, being away from your family for very long periods of time, you know, the pressure of all of those things can get to anybody, and and it certainly does get to them because they're human. All right, last thing I want to talk to you about. Something that's probably very personal to you. I saw that you did you you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro here recently. I did in benefit of a pediatric cancer uh, foundation. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of that experience. And were you are you a hiker in general, or is that something you just kind of a a whim of Hey, this is something I'd like to do. I would say I am definitely not a hiker in general. 
I would say I'm active. Um, you know, I, I'd like to work out. Yep. I like to do stuff. Um, like if I go on vacation many times, you know, it's going to be somewhere where I can relax on a beach, but, you know, go hike as well or, or do something that's, you know, that, that's more active. You know, I, I'd yep. like doing that stuff. But it kind of got started when I, I went to Africa on a safari um, with my girlfriend and we did a um, we did a safari in the Serengeti. And in the background, you see this huge mountain, you know, covered in snow. And you're like, what is that? And, you know, that they're in, in Tanzania. And our guide said, that's Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm like, that's Mount Kilimanjaro. And I said, yeah, it's the largest freestanding mountain in the world. And I'm like, that's that's wild. So the guy that um, put our tour together said, you got to come climb that thing one day. And I go, no, yeah, okay, <laughs> no, no shot. <laughs> so he kept on me about it. And, you know, he said, hey, we're doing this. You got to go. You got to go. And I said, all right, I'm going to do it for my birthday. But if I'm doing it, I'm going to raise some money. So Brian McCann uh, had been, um, has been, he, he and his wife has been the spokesperson for a uh organization by the name of Rally Foundation, which raises money for pediatric cancer research. And I became active with them as well about 13 years ago um, when, when he did. Uh, Chipper's very active with them as well. They're based out of Atlanta. Uh, they're a great organization. So I said, I'm going to raise money for them. Um, Ed Bastian, who's uh, the CEO of Delta, had done a, a marathon and raised money for, for Delta. Delta's very involved with them up in Atlanta. So he gave me the idea and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise money. I'm also sit on the board here uh, in Tampa with the national pediatric cancer foundation, which is the same type of, of idea. They run, they've raised money a little bit differently, but um, I sit on the board there and have been involved with, with them for 15 years um, through originally the, the Chuck Lamar, what was then the Chuck Lamar fishing tournament, uh, but then became more active with them. And again, our players are great. You know, with with supporting those causes and other causes, um, we've done sh shaving our heads. Um, you know, with cut for the cure for National Pediatric Cancer Foundation. So it just fit perfectly. So I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise money, and both of those organizations helped me um, raise money for it. And it it also allowed me, I think, some extra motivation that if I was gonna <laughs> raise this money, that I was certainly gonna get to the top. That's um, awesome. We I was able to raise about one hundred sixty thousand dollars. Um, for um, for them, and you know, a lot of it came from our players, uh, our our partners um, at Jet Sports, and then just personally, a lot of friends and family that were more than generous to um, to make donations. And we went over to Africa, and um, and we got up and down in seven days. And you know, I, the first time I think I'd camped since I was fifteen. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a challenging experience, but you know, that last night and leaving at midnight and you know, getting back down nine hours later from, you know, from the peak of, of Kilimanjaro and standing, you know, on the top of Africa was, uh, was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. At what point did you say, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> uh, many, many times, <laughs> many times, you know, the, the, you get excited at first and then you wake up the third or the fourth day and you haven't really slept and, you know, it's cold, you know, you're sleeping in full clothing with hat and everything. It freezes every night. Um, the shores can be probably or, you know, you, you just, you're just not used to the grind of it more than anything. I, I had gone out to Cal Colorado and done a two day, um, a two day hike out there and, and did some 13,000, 14,000 mountains. And, you know, to, to try to compare that to what I did at Kilimanjaro was, was not, 
not really applicable, let's to say the least. I mean, when you're at 20, almost 20,000 feet uh, and you're walking 100 feet, you know, and your heart rate gets up to 150 beats a minute and you're just having to stop and then you w walk a little bit. It's, it's literally you're just gaining an inch and gaining an inch wow. and gaining an inch. And uh, it was it was exhilarating. But again, I thought about those kids. I thought about those families that yeah. you know, that we had been in contact with over over the last, you know, over a decade. And, you know, they got me up there for sure. That's a heck of an accomplishment. I mean, both financially, what you did for the Pediatric Foundation and then uh, just obviously personally and physically. That's just that's that's tremendous. And uh, I just want to really thank you, Mr. Abbott, B.B., uh, you know, you got a great, uh, you got, you have a great story to tell. And I think you did a great job explaining to the, to, to our audience, just all the different intricacies that go into being an agent and give a little plug for your uh, jet sports management. Give us a little, the website and you, you know, Facebook, Twitter feed and all that kind of good stuff. And kind of what's your, what's your, what's going to be your immediate plan. once baseball starts, will you be on the road a pretty good bit to see your guys? Yeah, I was actually talking about that with our guys, right? You know, just a second ago. I mean, for, first and foremost, our website is jetsports.com. You know, all of our agents are on there. Our Instagram is jetsportsmanagement at jetsportsmanagement, and then our Twitter is is at jetsportsmgmt for management. Jetsportsmgmt. Um, you know, I think that we will. Yeah, I think that. Listen, a, a large part of what we're doing is relationship building. Um, so you know, we will probably go in. You know, it'll be a lot more off the field, obviously. It's not like we're going in to see our, our guys play because we can't get into the into right, the stadiums. Right, right. But we will go in and and certainly see our guys, specifically our guys that are going into free agency or going into arbitration because it's going to be weird, right? I mean, having a 60-game season, you know, changes that dynamics completely of what um, – you know, of what they're, they're, they're going to experience this off season. So that'll be a lot of educating, you know, going, we'll go to breakfast or go to lunch or see them after the games. Um, but yeah, I, I think that we'll try to get back to some, some sense of normalcy uh, and, you know, come July 23rd, 24th, when baseball starts up again uh, and, and we get to see these guys on TV. I hope that that goes a long way to establishing that. Awesome. Well, you were great, Mr. Abbott, and um, appreciate the time today. And uh, we'll definitely try to reach out to you, maybe get an update, maybe halfway through the year, see how things are going with your guys. And maybe we'll get one of your guys on the podcast one day. I'd love to be a great opportunity, maybe to get them some um, tell their story about how they got to where they're coming from. But but I really appreciate it, BB. And uh, it was great talking to you. And uh, you have a great rest of your week and great baseball season. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jason. Thanks. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.